Go ahead and get started. So this is uh, lesson 11. So this is the last one. So don't don't come next week or afterwards because I won't be here <laughs> teaching anything. So um, so tonight we're going to cover Bethel Church. Uh, so there's, it's something that I guess a group that many of you guys probably don't even know. You don't even know who they are or why I'm including them. Uh, so we're going to find out why here in a little bit. Uh, but I just want to say up front uh, that this specific class that we're going to be talking about, that, that we're going to be covering today, is not going to be about the gifts of the Spirit in and of themselves. Okay? Uh, that's a, it's a different topic. It's a related topic, but it's a different one. So uh, we're not going to talk about whether the gifts are continuing, whether they cease tonight. We're just going to look at very specific heretical doctrines that this group teaches and that they're spreading uh, to churches, even local churches right here in the Twin Cities. Okay? Um, so 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, we're not talking about that at all tonight. It's not in the scope. But with that being said, I want to know where I'm coming at on the issue, uh, just so that you just are aware of what the bias is. Uh, <clears throat> I do not consider myself to be a cessationist, uh, but I don't really want to take on the term continuationist either as far as whether the gifts continue or whether they cease. Um, cessationist just means that you believe the gifts have ended after the, after the apostles. Uh, but if you're putting things down in a spectrum, I'm definitely much closer to the camp of cessationists than I am to uh, Assemblies of God and other groups. Uh, but I did get saved in an Assemblies of God church, that, and I was a part of the charismatic movement for like eight years, like very much involved in it, went to all the revival meetings and everything. So I'm very familiar with charismatic theology. It's kind of what I grew up in as a Christian. Uh, but as I learned the Bible more, became much more reformed in my theology, and I've come far away from, from where that was, where I, I guess, kind of came up with, with Christianity. Uh, that was back in 2008. So now it's 2022 20, now. Um, so at this point in time, uh, I don't, I guess I just view charismatic theology as something different. Uh, such as something like Methodism. Uh, well, hold on, let me back up. So I consider charismatic theology to be aberrant, but not necessarily heretical. Okay, I don't want to take it as far as others, such as John MacArthur, who say that all charismatics are just automatically not saved. I think he goes a little bit too far on that. However, I did, while doing my research for this topic, come across an argument there that I'm still processing through, trying to examine it biblically and, uh, and see what it is, just to see where I, where I think it lands on whether they are Christians or not. Uh, and that's basically the idea that uh, they're different from Methodists. So like Methodists, they have a theology that I think is wrong. It's not biblical, but it's not heretical. They're still as solid on the foundations as we are here at this church, um, salvation by grace alone, et cetera. And their theology is not embarrassing or dishonoring to God in any way. Whereas with charismatic, you know, churches, they definitely engage in behaviors that are embarrassing to, to everybody else. Um, whether it's the laughing, the falling over, and, and you can even get wilder than that that goes on. Uh, and then also a big thing that I never considered before just a few days ago is that they're taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain constantly with all the false prophecies that they give and the false healings, et cetera, that they're saying are being done in the Holy Spirit's name that are not. Uh, and that is probably a sign that they might not be saved. If you're constantly, every day, as a matter of your practice, your Christian practice, bringing dishonor to God that way. Uh, so like I said, that's just an argument that's new to me. Hadn't considered that angle before. Uh, so just trying to let you know and be honest with where I'm at. So apologize for not being able to give you a definitive answer on where I stand. I know Joel probably has an opinion, but you can talk to him about it afterwards. <clears throat> uh, so today we're going to be exposing, focusing exclusively on Bethel Church and their theology. Uh, the pastor of Bethel is a guy named Bill Johnson. Uh, he's been the pastor at Bethel Church since 1996. Uh, it is in Redding, California, which is Northern California. 
Uh, it, it was a small town that this church basically put this town on the map. No one knew what Reading was until he started his church there. Well, he didn't start it until he became the pastor there. Uh, he actually replaced his father as the pastor of this church. Uh, but he has some big problems. Uh, he has very heretical views on Jesus that we're going to cover today. Uh, he has a false belief about the nature of God. We're going to talk about that uh, regarding healing. And he also has a false gospel. Like it's, he has salvation by grace, but he wants to add additional things to it that you get beyond just salvation. So it's, it's a weird thing where normally it's grace plus works equals salvation. He's trying to say grace equal or uh, great. You get uh, salvation and healing and these other things by grace. So he's, he's adding things on to the other side of the equal sign, which is a unique thing in history, I guess. Rather, rather than doing it on the left side, he's doing it on the right side. And that really makes it a false gospel, as I think you'll see as we go. Uh, so why am I focusing on Bethel? Because it is just one church out there in the middle of uh, nowhere, California. Uh, it's because it's not just one church anymore. It has become a global phenomenon. It's uh, in pretty much probably every country in the world. It's very huge in Africa, very huge in uh, Japan, Korea, very huge here in the United States, Canada, uh, Mexico. It's, it's all over the place. So uh, they have music that they put out. That is their Trojan horse that they use to get their theology into churches all over the place. Uh, you, this, if you don't know who Bethel is, as I'm telling you about this, you're just, I have no idea. You've, I guarantee you, you've heard their music. If you've turned on a Christian radio station here in the, United, or here in the, the Twin Cities, you've heard their music. It, they're on all the major, the major Christian radio stations. Uh, for example, the song, This is Amazing Grace. I'm not going to sing for you guys because I don't want to punish you for coming. But uh, uh, that song is uh, from Bethel. So uh, not the song Amazing Grace. Like, you know, this is Amazing Grace. Uh, you, you probably know it. Uh, other artists that came out of here that you probably know. So Jeremy Riddle, I think I already mentioned. Jen Johnson, Jonathan and Melissa Helser and Christine DiMarco. These are people that are on local Christian radio stations, they're on national Christian radio stations. Uh, so you, you probably know them even if you don't think you know them. So, uh, what else do I want to say about that? <clears throat> and I, so I, I, one other point I want to make as well is that when I'm talking about Bethel, I'm not just trying to make a big deal about insignificant issues, such as worship style, whether you use a guitar or a piano, or uh, whether you use fog machines and laser lights. Those are issues that are kind of insignificant, really, in the realm of grand scheme of things. Um, even if you don't, you might like them, you might not like them. That's irrelevant. Uh, this is gonna be about real, real theological differences between us and them. All right, uh, and the purpose, like I already said, of their of their music, it's not just praise and worship. The reason why they have a Bethel music group uh, and the other one that they have is called Jesus Culture uh, is to be a means of evangelistic outreach, effectively, with their the to get their theology. It's the hook in the mouth to reel you in. Uh, what, okay, I don't have time today to cover whether we think we should be singing their songs and listening to them, et cetera. Uh, that's just, we don't have time time for that today, but as far as that'll leave it up to your conscience. It's a great question. Maybe we'll cover it in the Q&A afterwards. Uh, but I'll let you decide after you hear the specifics of the teaching, whether you think it's good or not to listen to their songs. So, uh, and another big reason of why we're covering it is because of their Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, BSSM. Uh, this is where they take people in, they train them in how to use the gifts, at least according to their idea of how the gift should be used. They get them in there for like two years. They get them radicalized in this, uh, this theology. And the, with the purpose of them going to local churches, like right here at Riverview or wherever it is, joining the church and then trying to change the culture from the inside. 
So it's they're meant to be like little seeds. So and this is not like some conspiracy. They're very open about this. Like you can you can find dozens of sermons of different leaders at Bethel, including Bill Johnson, saying that we're sending our seeds out into the other churches around the world. So that's their purpose. And they're called church wreckers. Uh, I've personally heard of this term because I remember I used to be part of people who believe this stuff. Uh, they, call, they proudly call themselves church wreckers because they could come in and they would wreck a church. Basically, they'd cause it to split because they got a bunch of people in line with this theology and you can't have both of them coexisting in one church. So it causes problems. Uh, but that is a label that they should be ashamed of, not proud of. Uh, this is this school also has the nickname of the Christian Hogwarts. Is what they call it. Uh, it's because of the crazy things that go on there, and there are really wild things that go on there. Bill Johnson says that uh, his specific church and his school should be viewed at as like a research and development part of a company. And then uh, when things come out and they go out, that's where things get manufactured in the other churches. So he said, we're going to do wild things here and figure out what works and what really is God. And then we're going to export that. So that's why you're going to have lots of really wild things going on at their church. <clears throat> uh, they say that they're doing this for the purpose of seeing revival in this country and across the world. However, they do not mean revival in the same way that you and I think about it, which means people getting saved in large, large numbers at a time. That's what we think when we hear the word revival. That is not what they mean. They mean manifestations of the Holy Spirit, such as prophecies, healings, other miracles, etc. So it's not necessarily about seeing people come into the kingdom. It's about seeing the kingdom come into lives, like the, the church building and the lives of the people who are present there. They, they, they view it that way. It's very different. Uh, like I said, I used to be part of the charismatic movement. I used to go around, go to a revival meeting after revival meeting at tents and buildings or wherever they would meet. They'd rent out like a, a, a building in a strip mall for like a week and they would have a meeting there. Uh, and basically this, what I, after I noticed after going there, cause I thought, Hey, this is, we're bringing revival. We're going to get people saved. Right. That, that was my motivation for going at the time. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to attend them. I'm going to support them. But as after time went on, I began to realize I'm seeing the exact same people at every meeting, whether I went in Brooklyn Center, whether I went down to Burnsville or Eden Prairie. It was it was just the same group of people traveling around because they're chasing an experience. OK, they're they're not really looking to see people get saved in a sense. They want to see people uh, just see the manifestations of God. <clears throat> uh, in fact, I actually witnessed the exact same people in several different occasions getting healed for the exact, getting healed in quotes for the exact same issues that they did at other meetings, right? There's like this lady had some hip issue that uh, she was always complaining about the pain and she'd go up there, get healing for it. And she would say, I'm healed and be walking around like it was fine. But then she'd be at the next meeting saying she needed healing again for her hip because she would lose her healing. But she was never legitimately healed. Okay. And I began to realize this over time as I went. So uh, it's about creating experience. That was, that's really what it's about. Uh, and they might balk at my saying that that way, but I mean, I don't know how else to really explain it. Uh, and I have a suggestion as well. We don't need revival. Uh, we should stop praying for revival. What we need is an awakening. Okay. Stop using the word revival. Revival means that you were alive and then you died and now you need to come back. Okay. Uh, revival is the idea of you being restored. But the biblical idea is that you're dead. Like you start out, you're born dead effectively. And then God raises you to life. You're born again. So we should think of it as an awakening, like the first time, not a second time. You know what I mean? Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, that's why the, we won't have the first great revival, the second great revival, you know, in our country, we call them the awakenings because that was when you actually saw people coming into the kingdom that weren't in it before. So it's a big difference. 
Uh, and one last note before we get uh, start delving into their theology. Uh, some people use the term NAR for them. And this is, stands for New Apostolic Reformation. As somebody who used to be a part of this, uh, yes, the definition, the definition that people give of NAR definitely applies to them. But this is a term that they don't use for themselves. It's a term that other people outside of their movement have applied to them. So, uh, like, I, the first time I even heard the term was when someone told me, oh, you're part of the NAR. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right? And then it, it, they lost credibility in my mind because they obviously don't know what I believe because they don't even know what we call ourselves, right? So don't, it's not helpful to use the term. I guess maybe if you're talking amongst yourselves uh, as code or, you know, as easy speech, is probably fine, but if you're talking with them, it's not helpful. So, all right, so let's get into their theology. Uh, the thing about Bill Johnson is that he will occasionally make orthodox statements about Christ and other things and that, that completely disagree with what he teaches from the pulpit. Uh, he'll come out and make a video to address a controversy, and he'll just say, I don't actually believe that you meant so I meant something different. But then he doesn't explain what he meant. So he doesn't bring any clarity, he just waves his hand over the issue, basically, saying that, no, I actually do believe that Jesus is fully God. But yet he teaches from the pulpit that, well, as you're going to find out, uh, the Kenosis heresy, that Christ emptied himself of divinity so that he wasn't fully God when he was on earth. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> so that confuses people, and that's a problem. Unfortunately, uh, but dangerous deceptions are always mixed with truth to sell the lie. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics all do the same. So we should expect the same here. And also, there are ways to interpret what Bill Johnson says in a way that makes him sound orthodox. Uh, we do this all the time with people. It's actually a good and fair thing to do most of the time. Uh, however, when you're starting to have to explain away item after item after item, you have to start asking yourself, uh, is he really saying the things that you think he is or that you want him to say or is he actually saying the things that he's saying <laughs> right uh, so I, I just I don't accept his hand-waving explanation and I watched a whole lot of videos of him just basically waving his hand over it and saying that's uh, not what I mean well, it's like well why don't you explain what you mean then uh, but he doesn't want to do it because he can't <laughs> because it's not because it is actually what he means also, I'm very much indebted to Mike Winger for the bulk of this teaching. Uh, he really took the time to dig through hours and hours and hours and hours of Bill Johnson's teachings to really understand what's going on here. I relied heavily on his research for this class. So just wanted to give him the credit that he deserves for that. All right, so uh, the, 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 his uh, heretical Christology of Bill Johnson and Bethel Church. Uh, they hold to what is called the Kenosis heresy. It means that Christ emptied himself of divinity to become a man. Uh, this is, it comes from a bad reading of Philippians 2.7, which says that he, but he emptied himself uh, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, what that really means is that he humbled himself, like he emptied himself of his, of his position in heaven and came down to earth. It doesn't mean that he gave up all of his divine attributes. Uh, this is a quote about what kenosis, uh, kenosis heresy is uh, from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It says, the kenosis theory holds that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. According to the theory, Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, such as omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, uh, while he was on the earth as a man. This was viewed as a voluntary self-limitation on Christ's part, she carried out in order to fulfill his work of redemption. So that's how they try to make it sound orthodox, is to say, oh, it was voluntary. He didn't have to do it when he became a man. Uh, but that's not what we read in scripture at all. <clears throat> uh, here are some quotes from Bill Johnson on this matter. And you tell me if you think it sounds like Jesus was fully God or truly God while he walked the earth. Uh, it says, he said, Jesus did everything as a man, laying aside his divinity, in order to become a model for us. And like I said, there's a way to interpret that where maybe you can say sounds orthodox. Because if we're gonna be honest, when you're talking about issues like this, like the hypostatic union or the Trinity, it's hard to talk in a way that's entirely consistent 
with what the theology is. So you, it's okay to give grace to people, uh, but it's just he keeps doing it over and over and over again, and he's very persistent in it. Uh, so another quote, Jesus did everything in his earthly ministry as a man who had set aside all his divine privileges and power in order to model the Christian life for us. Another quote, Jesus could not heal the sick. Neither could he deliver the tormented from demons or raise the dead. To believe otherwise is to ignore what he said about himself, and more importantly, to miss the purpose of his self-imposed restriction to live as a man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Uh, so Bill Johnson, he did an interview about this issue with someone of our own staff. Oh, I already talked about that. Sorry. So the problem here, so when Bill Johnson comes on and he wants to say, I actually do believe that Jesus is fully man, right? Or fully God. Uh, the problem when he, when he says that is he bases uh, his theology of healing on this heresy. The fact that Jesus did not do miracles as God, but he did them as man only because he had to do it with the anointing of God as a man. It's because that way we as humans can also walk in the anointing of God and do miracles because we're just normal humans as well. So the whole foundation of his theology is this heresy right here. Uh, here's some more quotes from him uh, explaining this, how, how heres that kenosis heresy is the basis for his theology of miracles. Uh, Jesus Christ said of himself, the son can do nothing. In the Greek language, that word has unique meaning. It means nothing, uh, just like it does in English. So he's being a little cheeky there. Uh, he had no supernatural capabilities whatsoever. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in rela right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Here's two more quotes. And these are from different works. So he's written a bunch of books about this. He's given sermons. So this is, this is not just from like one book. Like it's from three different books. It's from sermons, etc. <coughs> uh, Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. He couldn't cast out devils, and he had no ability to raise the dead. He said of himself in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of himself. He had set aside his divinity. He did miracles as man in right relationship with God because he was setting forth a model for us, something for us to follow. Jesus so emptied himself that he was incapable of doing what was required of him by the Father without the Father's help. Uh, he also says this, the outpouring of the Spirit was needed uh, or also needed to happen to Jesus for him to be fully qualified. He wasn't qualified in of himself. He needed the Holy Spirit. Uh, that was his quest. Receiving this anointing qualified him to be called the Christ, which means anointed one. Without the experience of Christ's anointing by the Spirit after water baptism, there could be no title. It means no title. He could not be called the Christ without being baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit there. Uh, that's, a big, that's a big problem, that theology. Uh, so what's the biblical response to this? Well, if Jesus is not truly God, then his death would not be sufficient for all of us. It's as simple as that. It, he was truly God, truly man, uh, just like what the, the, the creed talk that says that we mentioned before, the uh, Nicene Creed. Uh, it's what the Bible teaches. We've covered that in depth in other classes. Uh, but additionally, to, additional to that, Jesus did miracles very specifically to prove that he was divine, that he was a deity. Uh, we have an example here from John chapter 10. It says, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So he's speaking to the Pharisees. They're angry at him. Uh, and if, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am the Father. Saying, I'm doing these works to prove that I'm God. <laughs> he just straight up told the Pharisees that. Uh, and then in Mark chapter 2, we have another example where Jesus makes the point to write to the Pharisees' face that he is God. 
This, uh, this is where he heals the, the man who came down through the roof. We've referenced this several times already in the classes. That says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So he did a miracle to prove that he could forgive sins, which only God could do. <coughs> Sorry, I got a cough. Uh, another one here. Uh, Jesus had command over the weather. This is something, another, another thing that's pretty clear throughout the Bible, that only God can control the weather. It's not something that men can do. Uh, so Mark chapter 4, And he uh, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? Only God. What was that? Go ahead, Richard. So if they hold that he became the Christ by his baptismal anointing of the Holy Spirit, couldn't they say that this is the Holy Spirit, God, working all these things as God? Because he's now the anointed virgin of himself? Well, they're going to still hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, like that same that we would hold to. <laughs> right. uh, Since only God can do these kind of things. <clears throat> but they want to say that Jesus did these things. Not with the Holy Spirit. They're going to say that, yeah, he, that's the point, is that Jesus couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit doing it, right, so helping they, him. They explain this away, they say, well, yeah, this, this is the Holy Spirit working through Jesus doing these things. That, that's what they would say? That's what they would say, yeah. That it's the Holy Spirit's anointing on him as a man with no deity, that he emptied himself of it, uh, so that he could do these things. Because right. then you, because you're just a man as well, so when you get the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you can do this too. So they think that they can control the weather. There are examples of them trying to do this. Okay, and they fail really miserably. Like there was a just like two or three years ago, like a wildfire that came up around their building and burned like Redding down. Uh, and they were like, why can't you control the fire if you can control weather, right? I mean, it's it's about to burn your church down. So they were they were criticized for that, rightfully so. So. <coughs> so just their starting position about the Holy Spirit being the anointing power would deny any argument you can really make from these without addressing that presupposition they have. Because they're going to say, oh, well, yeah, it's the Holy Spirit doing this. And you say, no, it's Jesus. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, of course. I mean, that would be their explanation for it, right. but I'm making the point that the, text is, clear that the text is clear that it's not the Holy Spirit doing it. It's that Jesus is the one with the authority here. So, like, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Because he's the one who's authority, uh, who has the authority over it, you know? So, uh, yeah, good, good point. So, I, I think the text is clear that it contradicts them, but that's probably going to be their comeback. Oh, thank you. Uh, that it's just the Holy Spirit working through him. Uh, but just really make them show you where it is in the text because it's not there. <clears throat> so only God has the power to control the weather. Uh, the disciples understood this and that's why they were afraid in the moment because they were understanding this is the, this, God has that authority and Jesus did the, the, just did this. Therefore, God is literally physically in this boat with me, <laughs> and I'm afraid, right? And that's an appropriate response, I think. <clears throat> so, and a, this is a huge aspect of Bethel's theology here, is that it's always God's will to heal, always. Uh, Bill Johnson, he says this over and over and over again, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. Uh, on his own website at Bethel, they have a question and answer. And the question on there is that it's, is it always God's will to heal someone? 
And this is their response. Uh, How can God choose not to heal someone when he's already purchased their healing? Was his blood enough for all sin or just certain sins? Were the stripes he bore only for certain illnesses or certain seasons of time? When he bore stri- uh, when he bore stripes in his body, he made a payment for a miracle. He already decided to heal. You can't decide to not not to buy something after you've already bought it. Notice how he changed the word there. So he didn't make the payment for our transgressions; he made the payment for our miracle. <clears throat> so that's just uh, straight up changing the text of the Bible to make a point. Uh, Bill Johnson really makes a strong point of adding physical healing to the gospel at Bethel. Uh, Being saved from sin and death is not enough for them. They want to add a plus sign to salvation. They need the miracles, and they need to be healed right now. Uh, And unfortunately, just a few months ago, Benny Johnson, who's Bill Johnson's wife, passed away of cancer. So he wants to add and say, you, if you get Jesus, you get salvation and healing today. He couldn't even deliver that theology to his own family. And I'm not, I want to rub it into, uh, in and mock him for it. I just pointed out that it doesn't even play out in his own life. Uh, he also has a son who's deaf, that his son is not healed. And his son is like an adult in his 40s. And he's lived his entire life without being able to hear. <coughs> Uh, so, the reality of his gospel is even played out in his own life. Uh, he was asked this question at a conference, at a video that I watched of him. Does God ever cause anybody to get sick or choose not to heal? So it's a similar question to the last one, but this was his response. Jesus was sleeping in the bottom of the boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm. He was sleeping because the world he was living in had no storm. He was living in a realm of kingdom reality. He was actually living in a realm called peace. When they woke him up, he stood, looked out over the storm, and it says that he released peace over the storm. Now, how did he release peace? Because he had it to give. We know he had it because he slept in the storm. So you can only give away what you have Can God give away sickness? No, he's not sick. You can't give away, you can't give cancer if you don't have it. That was his response. Uh, This is not based on scripture at all. Uh, It's not even based on reality. Uh, In fact, we have right here in scripture, the hand of the Lord is heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Uh, this is from 1 Samuel 5, 6, because the, the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant away in a battle. They won it, and God punished them for taking his covenant, uh, the, the Ark, away uh, by giving them cancer. So we have a very concrete biblical example of God giving somebody cancer as punishment, uh, and they rightfully deserved it. So it's not like he did it unjustly. <clears throat> uh, so I guess the question I want to ask to... People at Bethel is so does God have cancer, right? If you can't give what you don't have, God have cancer. I mean, I think that's an absurd statement, uh, but it's it's the uh, it's where his theology leads you to. Uh, but we're going to get to how he would answer this in a little bit because he does have an answer for it, believe it or not. <clears throat> uh, and also, as another side note, uh, that we just read that verse from Mark chapter 4. I think it's also in Matthew chapter 8. It does not say that he released peace. It doesn't say anything about a realm of peace or kingdom actuality or kingdom reality. He commanded peace to the storm because he's the one with the authority. He didn't look to some realm, some aspect that he had, and then released it out of himself to that. He just had the authority to tell it to stop storming. And the storm had to obey because he's the one with the authority. Uh, <clears throat> so Bill's central verse so this is like his life verse if you want to call it that uh, he quotes it all the time it's in all of his books uh, it's all over his website 
It's Matthew 6.10. It's from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, They think that this verse means that everything that we could expect to see in heaven, we should see on earth. So it's another way in which they connect miracles directly to the gospel message. Uh, But this verse, when when we pray this verse, when we say that our Father, Jesus did not intend us to expect miraculous healings on earth. That wasn't in view here in this verse. It's not that God can't heal, by the way. It's, it's the expectation and demand that it comes with the gospel. Uh, that is the biggest issue here. Uh, it's what we're actually praying for is the return of Christ. Heaven's going to be on earth. We're praying for the new heaven and the new earth. That's really the context uh, of the surrounding this verse. Bethel, Bethel thinks that his kingdom coming means healing signs and wonders coming to your community right now. Uh, when this kingdom comes to the earth, that's the new heaven and the new earth. It's not miracles right here in this current version. That's not what this verse means. But it's, they take it and they blast it everywhere as proof of their theology. <clears throat> uh, furthermore, there's a biblical response to this. Uh, we are called to keep our faith in God in the midst of suffering. So Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the book of Daniel, they, were, they famously said that they believed God would deliver them from the fire when they were thrown in. But they said, even if he chooses not to, we will still serve God only. That's what we're called to. Uh, you have the whole enti- entire book of Job. That's a blatant ref- uh, ref- uh, refutation of Bill Johnson's theology. Uh, God brought suffering to Job to test his faith. <clears throat> And he had lost his health, he lost his family, he lost everything, uh, his wealth. And uh, God still praised, or Job still praised God in the end, and it was a good thing. Uh, And Job was rewarded for it at the end, uh, for his faithfulness. We are called to endure suffering as Christians. Uh, This is what Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter. Uh, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 through 10, But he said to me, that being God, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's no room for that in Bethel's theology. Uh, but that's, that's a foundational aspect of the Christian life, uh, that we, we should expect to have to wait on God. That's, that's what we're to uh, hold to. So. <clears throat> so where does this idea come from that we need to hold uh, why, why do they want to hold so strong with the idea that God always heals today, even though they don't really see it? Uh, they see it, I think, in only psychosomatic ways in which people think they got healed, just like how I saw those people at those revival meetings. But I don't, I never saw anybody get actually healed. I never actually saw a miracle in my eight years of being involved with this movement. Uh, I heard lots of people say that they got healed, and I heard lots of people say they saw a miracle, but I didn't ever see it myself. So I just, I don't think it's really there. It's, but that's me. Uh, This is what Bill Johnson has to say. Uh, This is how they explain it, by the way, uh, why you can have the book of Job in in the Bible with the gospels of Jesus healing. As they say that it is theologically immoral to allow an Old Testament revelation of God's nature to usurp and surpass the clear manifestation of the Father's nature as found in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is another quote from Bill Johnson. He says, any interpretation that differs from the standard set by Jesus needs to be brought into question because the standard is Jesus. That first quote that's saying that Jesus is God, definition of the Father's nature as found in Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ, um, that Jesus, his life revealed who, what the nature of God is with his life. Here's a long quote. Um, this is from a sermon that I transcribed, so I tried to make it sound a little more uh, 
readable, uh, but this is basically what he was saying. Uh, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. So that sounds good, uh, but I'm going to explain what that means in a little bit, uh, and it's actually really bad. So it is theologically immoral to allow any revelation about God that contradicts what you see in the person of Jesus or to allow that to trump your concept of what God is like. The clearest manifestation of the nature of the Father is seen in the person of Jesus. He made it very clear. He said that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So how did he handle sin? How did he handle sinners? How did he handle disease? How many storms did Jesus bless? How many times were there life-threatening storms where he would face the middle of the sea and he would say, well, just go over to that city and destroy them and it'll teach them to pray. They'll become more like me. We have concepts of the nature of God that are based on disappointment, not based on revelation. See, your question about God, the question, the questions that every one of us have, none of them have the authority to cancel a revelation. <clears throat> so what exactly does this mean? Because uh, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of confusing, uh, but it's really, it's really shot through all their sermons. So it takes a while before you start to pick up on it. <laughs> But basically, they have a very myopic and narrow view of Jesus that they only look at the Gospels. That's the only way that you really get to understand who Jesus was or who God, who the nature of God is. It's only through what you see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Everything else has to be interpreted. Everything else in the Bible needs to be interpreted through that lens. <clears throat> uh, but it's not. So intentionally exclude everything else that we learn about God and Jesus from the rest of the Bible. It just automatically dismisses it and removes it. Uh, he's effectively saying that he is intentionally limiting his understanding of who Jesus is to just what we see in the Gospels. But mind you, he's not saying in the New Testament either. It's just the Gospels. So things that Paul says about Jesus or that we see in the book of Revelation, those need to be interpreted in light of, in light of what we see in the Gospels as well. And because Jesus didn't cause anybody to get sick, in the Gospels, therefore, God's nature, he never gets anybody sick. He never gives anybody sickness either. <clears throat> the implication is that if you think that God causes storms, you believe in a different God, that you believe in a different Gospel. Jesus never whipped up any storms while I walked the earth as a man, did he? I feel like I missed a, uh... oh, what's coming up? No, I just missed it. All right, so here's a quote from Bill Johnson as well. It says, I refuse to create a, theolo a theology that allows for sickness. Like I said, he says that a lot. Here we have a problem, only one. It's a small one. It's actually a really big one, but he thinks it's a small one. The Apostle Paul gives a warning in Galatians, and he says this, if I, he's the one who brought the gospel to them, or even an angel comes to you and preaches to you a different gospel, you are to reject it. That is amazing. An angel shows up, and he flaps his arms, and he brings you a different standard, a different gospel, reject it. Even if I come back to you and I change my mind, don't pay any attention to me. All right, what gospel is it? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Let me illustrate. Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh, which has been interpreted by many as disease allowed to be brought on by God. That's a different gospel. <laughs> Jesus didn't model it and he didn't teach it. And Paul said, you can't change the standard. Bill Johnson so badly needs to include the idea that physical healing comes with the gospel that in this sermon that I just read to you, he said that Paul preached a different gospel than when he talked when he talked about the thorn in his flesh. He even goes so far as to say that Paul is cursed for doing it. He applies the curse from Galatians, written by Paul, to Paul. So when Paul says, I have a thorn in my flesh, sorry, it's really rude to keep your phones on, guys. All right, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> that's, that's really... Bad. I mean, I don't know what else, what you can really say about it. It's heretical. It is not Paul who has the false gospel here at all. I am not worried about meeting Paul in heaven. 
I am worried about whether I get to see Bill. Because this is a false Jesus. <clears throat> and if we're going to limit our view of Jesus to the Gospels and model our lives after him, uh, what, what we see there, well, I have some questions. Should I not just be an itinerant preacher? Because that's what Jesus was. That's what he did. And if we're going to model our lives after him, then why shouldn't we do that? Should I have stayed single? Because Jesus didn't get married. Should I follow the law? Jesus followed the law. He kept kosher, etc. He did the sacrifices. What is the limiting principle here? Bill is being way too casual about this. Uh, but we need to look at the fullness of the truth of the Bible. Look at the full counsel of God. Go ahead. It's kind of. Um, I mean, they're going to say that there's not enough revival going on. So when they when they do their praise and worship meetings to whip up the manifestations of the Spirit and they're praying for God's kingdom to come, they're looking at seeing the gospel come in a greater way to people's lives and they'll get healed. So you just haven't gotten enough of the gospel yet, more or less. And that's why they're praying for revival all the time, because they want, they think that people aren't getting healed because the gospel hasn't been spread. Go ahead. <clears throat> Correct, yeah. And she would put it on the person not having them So that's, that's the other thing that they'll say. Um, Bill does not, people in his church will say they probably don't have enough faith. Bill Johnson himself will not say that himself. So uh, he, is, he has actually publicly come out against people, even in his own church, who have said things like that. Uh, he doesn't like it. Uh, but it absolutely is something that people say in the movement. I mean, I've heard it myself. You just didn't have enough faith to get your healing. So uh, Bill says, that's okay, I have enough faith for the both of us. That's what Bill says. <laughs> but obviously he doesn't because people that he prays for doesn't get healed. So, so how does the gospel not get enough because they're not speaking enough? Because that's not believing it enough. So um, because what's, what's the hindrance of the gospel being enough? Um, so they have really strong views on spiritual warfare that I didn't have time to include with this, uh, like angels, like they'll go around trying to wake up angels. So angels sleeping on Correct. Yeah, they're sleeping. Like literally they'll say they're sleeping. So because not enough people are praying for revival. And once enough people pray, then these angels will wake up and they'll go out. Um, like there's even, there's an example recently. Uh, I mean, I guess it's, a couple, it's several years old now. Uh, of Benny Johnson, his wife, saying that she went into the sanctuary and saw a sleeping angel, and he was big. The only thing she could see of him was his foot because he was so big. And she had to yell, wakey, wakey, to the angel to wake him up. And then he woke up, and he said, I was sleeping. She's like, why weren't you, why were you sleeping? Or like, who, who are you? And he said, I'm the angel from the 1907 revival meeting. And uh, she said, well, why have you been sleeping? Because not enough people have prayed for revival. She's preached that from a pulpit. So that's, hopefully that answers your question. So I just thought it was too much for the class. We're already getting close to time. But uh, uh, So what is the biblical response to this? The Bible, the rest of the Bible, the full counsel of the Bible is necessary to understand what is happening in the Gospels. If you only read the Gospels, you are not going to understand what's going on. You need to have the full context, Genesis through Malachi, to understand what's going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the rest of the book, or the New Testament, Acts through Revelation, give you commentary on what happened in the Gospels. So you get the Old Testament sets you up for what happens in the Gospels, and then the New Testament gives you commentary on what happened in the Gospels. You need all of that to understand what's going on. 
You can't just look at the New Testament or the Gospels and try to interpret the Bible based on that. Uh, it's all got to work together. You got to look at the full, the full council. Now, you cannot neglect that Jesus spoke to Moses from the thorn bush. Do not neglect the Jesus who created everything because he's the one who was there at creation. Uh, but you also can't neglect the Jesus of Revelation who says this against, uh, against some people in a church. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Jesus giving out sickness. Is Jesus sick? I don't think so. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Uh, and that's, I don't think that means her literal children, it means her followers. Uh, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart, or the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I mean, that's Jesus. That's something that you, if, you're, if your idea of Jesus doesn't include that, you don't have a, the, the accurate picture of Jesus and who he is. Um, so how do they cope with this? Uh, the fact that there are other aspects of the Bible that disagree with their theology, that disagree with what they say the Gospels teach. Well, they just have a hierarchy of truth. That's literally what they have. Uh, this is what Bill, uh, Bill said in a sermon. There are superior truths. There are things that are absolutely true, but there are things that are more true. The judgment of God is true, that the mercy of God is more true. Sin is a reality. His love covers a multitude of sins, so it's more true. Anything that you know about the nature of God that is not seen in the person of Jesus is an inferior truth. That's basically what they get around to. Uh, so what's the response to this from the Bible? Uh, well, I mean, for one, that's just philosophical nonsense, and it's entirely anti-biblical. Uh, let's just look at an example that he gives, which is that uh, mercy triumphs over judgment effectively, or that that's not even the way he's phrased it. That's the biblical way. Uh, he says that mercy is a superior truth to judgment. So mercy is greater and it can cancel and negate judgment, okay? Because it's bigger and more important, it's more true. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does say that mercy triumphs over judgment. This does not mean that mercy negates judgment. That's not what it means. Uh, we see in the book of Psalms 85.10, steadfast love and faith, faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. God literally purchased our mercy through judgment by killing his own son in our place. God's judgment is fulfilled in every person, either through themselves or through Jesus in their stead. Justice and mercy are not contrary to one another. One is not superior to the other. They work together to bring out God's plan of salvation. One is not greater than the other. They work together. Uh, and then the last thing that we're going to talk about here is the Passion Translation. Uh, this is a new translation of the Bible. It's still in process. The New Testament is done. Um, I think they have five to ten books done in the Old Testament. Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah. I don't remember all of them. But, uh, so it's not completely done. But they're, So they're still working on it. They're planning on having it done by uh, 2027, so in the next five years. This is not being done directly by Bethel and by Bill Johnson. However, it is endorsed by him, and he uses it. He encourages people to, to use this translation of the Bible. Uh, I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Mead, who uh, somebody asked him, what's the best translation to use? His response was, the best translation is the one that you actually read, okay? Uh, and he does have an opinion about which one's better, but it doesn't matter if you don't read it, okay? So even if it's the New Living or NIV, as long as you're reading it, okay? Uh, this, however, I know, I know that he would not apply this to the Passion Translation. Uh, this is this is a really awful translation. 
Uh, it's to being done by a guy named Brian uh, Simons or Simmons. This guy says that one day he received a vision from God in which Jesus appeared to him in his bedroom, touched him on the forehead, and said that he was calling him to make a new translation of the Bible in English, and that he would release to him new understanding into the original text, uh, to, the, to the original language through the Aramaic manuscripts. Uh, and that and later on, he says that Jesus told him that he had to use homonyms to translate the Bible. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, there's a problem with this statement, other than the fact that I'm 100% confident it's completely made up. Or, the, I mean, the, or possibly a demon came and talked to him. I don't know. I have, I have a feeling that he's made it up. <clears throat> uh, for starters, there are no Aramaic texts. They don't exist. No one has ever found a single one. So he's saying that he's translating from them. Uh, he tells you he's translating from the Greek, which is the Nestleon 28 that I showed you last week, for some of it as his base text, but then he brings, he says that he uses the Aramaic text to bring extra nuance and flavor and passion to the translation. Uh, and he'll do manuscripts, like do footnotes throughout the translation saying from the original Aramaic. Well, he doesn't, he will not release the Aramaic manuscripts that he's working from, uh, probably because <laughs> they don't exist. The best guess that anybody can figure out that he's using are Syriac manuscripts from around the 9th or 10th centuries. Uh, that's all they can get. So mind you, these are manuscripts not written in the original language. So the original language of the, of the New Testament was Greek, not Aramaic. Jesus did speak Aramaic. There are signs of that true in the Gospels. Um, we have words in Aramaic included in the Greek New Testament, but then they translate them into Greek, you know, right there in the spot, like Tabitha Kun, little girl come, as an example. That's Aramaic word that they translate into Greek for you, right there in the text. Uh, however, nothing was written down in Aramaic. It was all in Greek, because only the locals spoke Aramaic. The New Testament was written for everybody, and Greek was the language that everybody spoke, so they were written in Greek. Uh, and even if, and, and so in Syriac and Aramaic are not exactly the same thing. There's some similarities, uh, but even if they were, they're separated by almost a thousand years of difference in language. I mean, do you think language changes over a thousand years? I mean, we have a hard time reading Shakespeare, and that was like 500 years ago. Not even. So uh, language changes a lot in that amount of time. So, uh, and this is also from a group that's not even directly connected to the people of Palestine. So uh, there's just no, there's, there's nothing that he's really could be translating from. It's as simple as that. He's, he's just making it up. Or he's using these Syriacs, uh, manuscripts, and just misrepresenting what he's doing. Uh, he uses homonyms to for double translation. So a lot of his verses will be translated twice, and he'll combine them into one sentence or maybe a paragraph. Uh, so what is a homonym? These are words that can have very different meanings when put in two different contexts. So for example, if I use the word bark, if you don't have, if I don't have context, you don't know what I mean. I could be talking about the trees, the outer layer of a tree, or I could be talking about the sound the dog makes. If I say the word bat without context, you don't know if I'm talking about an implement used to hit a ball, or if I'm talking about a nocturnal flying mammal. Or if I say the word pen, Without context, you don't know if I'm, say, if I'm talking about a writing tool or if I'm talking about a holding area for animals. So Aramaic is known in Syriac for having a lot of homonyms in it. So they just double up on a lot of the words. And basically what he does is things like this. This is a bad translation method, by the way. So that's to say in the original language, I said this. I used my special bat to hit a home run in last night's game. Okay. Bat is a homonym. Let's just say somebody took that and translated it to another language that said this. I used my special baseball implement to, oops, to hit a home run in last night's game. It is important, special even, to keep nocturnal flying mammals out of the park at night, out of the ballpark. And that's what he's doing. If you read through the translation, because he just takes the homonym and he finds a way to make both of them work by using similar other words. So like, 
Like I tried to keep special and park, you know, and bat in in both sentences. That's that's what he's doing, over and over and over and over again. Uh, so this the translation is like fifty to sixty percent longer than normal, by the way. And by the way, uh, you can there's a legitimate time where you can translate a homonym doubly in a language. Okay, so for example, let's just say I put this in my original language. I want to be cremated as my last hope for a smoking hot body. Okay, so it's a dad pun. Because <laughs> the homonym there is hot. Okay, because it could mean temperature, but could it also mean attractive. So you're using it in a double sense. So if you wanted to translate that into another language, you might need to use two sentences for that. Right, and then maybe put a footnote saying, "Hey, this is a homonym," or you know, just to indicate to the original reader, because that's not something that's just going to generally carry over into the, another language, uh, unless you just happen to have a homonym that means the exact same thing in the other language. Okay, double meanings, so they can be legitimately brought out in a translation only if the author indicated that he meant the double meaning of the word. Otherwise, the context chooses which one of the meanings it is. Okay, that's the normal process, the normal way of translating. So here are some examples uh, for you. This is uh, well, the Lord's Prayer. So this is from the ESV. Uh, and basically what he's doing, oh, this is a separate thing. Uh, with the Passion Translation, what he's doing with it is he's embedding the language of Bethel's theology right into the translation. So remember how we talked about how the Jehovah's Witnesses did this with the New World Translation? They changed words so that it would fit their theology. Well, they're doing the exact same thing here. So here's an example, uh, Lord's Prayer, Luke chapter 11, from the ESV. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That's very close to the prayer that we've all memorized as kids. Uh, but this is what the, the Passion Translation says. Our Heavenly Father, may the glory of your name be the center on which our life, our life, uh, life turns. May your Holy Spirit come upon us and cleanse us. Holy Spirit is never mentioned in the original language, by the way. Manifest your kingdom on earth and give us our needed bread for the coming day. Forgive our sins as we, as we ourselves release forgiveness to those who have wronged us and rescue us every time we face tribulations. So he's just embedding the language right there into the, verse, into the translation. Here's another example. Last slide. Uh, this is from Mark chapter 1. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is the first thing in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says. Uh, but this is what the Passion Translation says, according to Brian Simmons. At last, the fulfillment of the age has come. It is time for the realm of God's kingdom to be experienced in fullness. Remember, their theology is that the kingdom of God needs to come here and need to have miracles. Uh, turn your lives back to God and put your trust in the hope-filled gospel. Words like manifest, release, and realm from these verses that I just read to you are not in the original text at all. Uh, he included the Holy Spirit in there because they have a very robust, heretical view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just got to throw it in there, even though it has no bearing on the text whatsoever. Uh, those are words that come from Bethel's theological vocabulary, not from the, the verses themselves right there. So... Uh, it's a really bad translation. You should not use it. It's a sectarian translation, meaning it's very focused to them. Uh, if you go to the Passion Translation websites, uh, they market it as saying it's a legitimate translation and that it can be used for vigorous study, that you should use it from the pulpit, etc. cetera. Uh, the Message Bible, which is routinely panned and rightfully so, uh, at least Eugene uh, Peterson, who did that by himself, at least he acknowledges you should not preach from this and you should not study from it, okay? Uh, he looks at it as you should read it as a commentary, my commentary on the Bible, which is fair. Uh, but Brian Simmons wants to say, no, this is what you should be using. So, uh, but it's bad. So, 
Well, that's it for today. Any questions at all? I know there's a lot <laughs> that we went over. I already had some. And there's a lot more that can be said about this group. I just gave you the biggest issues. Uh, there is a lot more that's wrong. I didn't even get into the guy that they call their prophet, the prophet of Bethel, Chris uh, Valutin, I think is how you pronounce the last name. Uh, so we just don't, didn't have time for it. I'd be happy to answer questions about other charismatic groups as well if you have any questions. No? Okay. Well, thank you guys for coming. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. So. God, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we get to look forward to uh, when your kingdom comes to this earth for real, uh, that we look forward to the, full, uh, the fullness of our salvation, that we are uh, joyfully looking forward to with hope. We thank you that your spirit is with us, that it's guiding us, that it's leading us, uh, that it keeps us in you every day that it's working in us to stop us from sinning. Uh, we ask that you would bless us and that you would uh, also help us to reach out to those around us who are caught up in this false uh, movement, that you would help us to expose the errors of their way. And I thank you, God, that you have saved us here and ask that you would use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. Hopefully it was uh, helpful for you guys.